Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Robert Rubin. I'm chairperson of the Friends of the Princeton University Library, and I would like to welcome you today in behalf of the Council of the Friends and the Friends of the Princeton University Library for this extraordinary afternoon. We are all indebted to Mr. Leonard Milberg and his family for their continuing great contributions to the advancement of the intellectual life of this community. It is now my greatest pleasure to introduce Professor Froma Zeitlin, who is Director of the Program in Jewish Studies, who are the major sponsors of this conference this afternoon. Dr. Zeitlin. I was all ready to introduce myself. I didn't realize I was going to have someone introduce me. And it's my uh, great pleasure it will be to introduce at the end of my short introduction uh, Harold Shapiro, who will be the MC, as it were, for the proceedings. So it is my great privilege today to welcome you to the inaugural event of our gala celebration. It was designed to accompany the opening of the Leonard Milberg Collection of Jewish American Writers at Firestone Library, that features an exciting exhibition of some of its remarkable new holdings that I hope many of you will have a chance to see, and two important new publications, one a special double issue of the Princeton University Library Chronicle with original fiction, poetry, essays, and letters, and the second a fully documented catalog of the writers included in the collection, both of which I hope you'll have time to buy. This afternoon's events are followed by a roster of presentations and panels starting this evening and continuing over the next two days. And we should say that no tickets are needed for any of the other events except for today's. More than three years in preparation, this effort involved a joyous collaboration of Princeton University faculty and library staff who worked on all the different facets of the project, starting from our initial quite noisy meetings to select the authors and continuing until the very last moment to ensure what we hope will be a rousing and memorable affair. Before I turn over the podium to Harold Shapiro, President of Princeton from 1988 until this last June 2001, and to whom the entire collection is dedicated, I would just like to offer a few further remarks. The library and the conference, as you may note, have two different posters, each representing a particular view of what this collection might mean. The library chose a contemplative image by Ben Sean, not only a New Jersey native, but a very close neighbor in, to Princeton in the town of Roosevelt. The figure, lost in thought, can either be a writer absorbed in the usually lonely task of creation or an enraptured reader who is caught in the spell of the words he or she reads on the page. Yet the title of the exhibition, at any rate, tells a different story. Some of you may recognize the illusion, not for myself alone, and others may not. It is a reworking of a famous saying by the revered Jewish sage Hillel, if I am not for myself, who am I? If I am not only for myself, what am I? And if not now, then when? Not for myself alone speaks to community and tradition, to participation in continuity as well as in change, in this case, on the American literary scene. 
avid readers and writers, Jews who came to this land, amplified their tradition as people of the book in every genre of literature in ways their forebears perhaps might never have anticipated. These first newcomers, writing in Yiddish or more often in English, found ready audiences for their work in the general reading public and inaugurated an enduring love affair with letters that has few rivals for talent, variety, and longevity. And if not now, when? Just after the millennium, we have before us ample evidence of the Jewish imagination continuing at work. Playwrights, novelists, essayists, poets, graphic artists, all chronicling, claiming, subverting, and contesting their place in American society. Don't ask me to define our subject, though, but we made some efforts toward this end in our brochure, which I quote. It is not easy to arrive at a consensus as to what constitutes Jewish-American literature. We might agree, though, on a few guiding questions. Is it a matter of the author's origins or of thematic preoccupations such as assimilation and identity, social justice, ethical angst, post-Holocaust shockwaves, or nostalgia for a vanished world? Is it tone? ironic distance, self-mockery, philosophical rumination, prophetic anxiety, or none of these. Or a more general worldview that thrives on complexity, contradiction, and paradox. But no matter, our purpose in organizing this collection, and now our celebration, is hardly meant to settle this hyphenated issue once and for all, as if we should, as if we could. The word celebration brings me to the image on our conference poster. At the time we were planning it, some months ago, we came up with the idea of using the Statue of Liberty. It is, after all, the emblem of America's welcome to its many immigrant cultures, including the numerous Jews from, from across the seas. And the poem entitled The New Colossus, inscribed on its base, was written by a Jewish-American poet, Emma Lazarus, in 1883 and engraved on the plaque in 1903. And I quote the ones that most people know. Give me your tired, your poor, she says, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. In our search for an appropriate image of the lady, we found this wonderful picture, Miss Liberty, now in the Smithsonian Art Museum by Malka Zeldis, who I'm very happy to say is in the audience, a self-taught painter whose an imaginative vision of the harbor, populated with a variety of figures and complete with fireworks, amply conveyed to us the celebratory nature of our undertaking. Little did we know then how the face of New York Harbor was shortly to be changed forever by the dreadful events of the last month. But in their aftermath, the painting seemed to us even more fitting than before. The lady still stands triumphant, and the spirit of Miss Liberty is not only undaunted, it is stronger than ever before. Now is the time, if there ever was one, to celebrate our achievements, in this case, the long literary history of Jewish-American writers, those who prospered and continue to prosper among us in unparalleled ways. I want to offer next public recognition of those who have worked so hard and so long on this project. If there are omissions, please be assured that they are inadvertent and will be made up for eventually. To Ben Primer, 
John Logan, James Weinberger, Meg Rich, and Karen Trainer of the library, to name only a few of that staff. To Harold Woolmer, the indefatigable and resourceful agent of collection and the author of the uh, wonderful catalog. To the members of the Princeton faculty, Sean Wilentz, American Studies, Olga Litvak, History, Barbara Mann, Near Eastern Studies, Deborah Nord, Esther Shore, and Michael Wood of the English Department, C.K. Williams, poet but also creative writing, and to include myself. I would like to offer special tribute at this time to Marcy Citron, the program manager uh, of the program in Jewish studies and her assistant, Rainy Schleifer, upon whose expert and tireless efforts we have so heavily relied. And I'd like to put in a word, I think I'm entitled, for the program in Jewish studies. Founded in 1996, we have come a long way in raising the academic profile of Jewish life, history, and culture at Princeton University. Thanks, I should add, to the vision and assistance of Harold Shapiro. This conference sets the seal, if it were needed, on our accomplishments so far and anticipates what we hope will be a glorious and successful future in the years to come. I've left Leonard Milberg until the last of this list, a loyal alumnus with a passion for Princeton and a passion for books. He has added immeasurably to the cultural and academic life at Princeton. This is his third collection for the library and his most ambitious. It was preceded by two others, the collection of Irish poetry, the collection of American poetry. Getting to know Leonard over these last years and constantly being buoyed up by his energy, enthusiasm, vision, and penchant for the telephone has been for me a precious experience of immeasurable profit and delight. You will hear more about Leonard in the festivities to follow at the, at the library, but I want at this time to salute him in all our names and on behalf of Princeton University. And now, as a preliminary to handing over the proceedings to Harold Shapiro, let me say a few last words by way of introduction. Harold was our president for 13 years. I realize enough time for a second bar mitzvah, so a mazel tov. <laughs> he worked tirelessly over these years for Princeton in ways too numerous to mention, but just look at the scaffoldings all over campus and at least get some ex- external signs and to whom expressions of gratitude and affection can simply never be adequate. He's just the best. He's a mensch, if there ever was one, and all of us who've had the pleasure of working with him can offer ample testimony to this indisputable fact. We owe a good deal to Leonard Milberg's foresight in dedicating this collection to Harold, a bibliophile of the first order in his own right. Books are everywhere in his life, and in fact, When he retired last year, I'm told, as president, the carpentry shop built him a bookcase as a farewell gift, using wood from the campus as a permanent memento. One of Harold's favorite gifts, in turn, is the offer of a book. And at the close of his tenure, by way of thanks, he donated a number of new books with specially inscribed book plates to many of those who served in his administration and on his faculty. Add to this his devotion to Jewish culture on the personal level to provide a winning combination. And before I give you Harold Shapiro, I would like to invoke one last element of the Jewish tradition 
at the inauguration of any undertaking to give thanks for having brought us to this day. So I will say it first in Hebrew and then a brief translation. So Baruch Atadunai Eloheinu Melacholam Shechianu Vikiyamanu Vehikianu Lasman Haseh. And we give thanks for having kept us alive and sustained us and helped us to reach this wonderful day. And now I give you Harold Shapiro, who will introduce our authors and preside over the rest of the afternoon. Romo, thank you very much for those very kind words. I myself have been looking forward with uh, increasing anticipation of this afternoon for probably almost a year now, and I'm very pleased that so many of you are here with us this afternoon. I also want to extend my own personal thanks uh, to Leonard and Ellen Milberg and their family. It's wonderful to have so many of them here. There's lots of things that are special about the Milbergs. Uh, we have a lot of alumni here at Princeton who are very supportive of the university in many ways. But one thing that is significant about uh, Leonard and his family is they're not only supportive in the normal sense that you mean that, namely with resources, but they are supportive with time and ideas. And it was Leonard's uh, initiative that got all this started. And I knew this was going to work out because, unlike many others, he decided he'd speak to the faculty first about this instead of the president. That's a, short, that's a much better strategy for anyone out there who's thinking of things like that. Speak to the people who know. And that's how things, uh, things happen. I also want to extend my thanks to the faculty and others who were involved in putting this all together, uh, both for the conference and, of course, especially the special collection that's involved. Now, my role this afternoon, as you've already heard, is to just briefly uh, so-called MC this event. I just want to introduce uh, each of the extraordinary group of authors who are sitting here on the stage with us this afternoon. Now, it's always, it would always be a great thrill and pleasure to uh, welcome such extraordinary artists and writers here to Princeton, but to have the privilege of having some of these extraordinary writers read is something which is, at least for me, extremely and especially exciting, and I look forward to it all. It's a significant privilege for all of us. So on behalf of the university, I welcome you all uh, to our campus. Now, our first reader this afternoon is the distinguished writer, Grace Paley. In her three marvelous collections of short stories, Grace Paley plums the lives of working class New Yorkers, mapping out what Michael Wood in the New York Review of Book calls, and I quote, a whole small country of damaged, fragile, haunted citizens, end of quote. Paley's unforgettable dialogue brings her characters, be they Jewish, African-American, or Irish, alive, alive, and I would say kicking, against bad luck, wasted energies, and missed chances. In Paley's stories, redemption lies just around the corner, up a tree, across the street, somewhere close at hand. To many critics, she is a writer's writer, but her stories, while exquisitely crafted and profound, are also, as many of you know, utterly accessible. accessible. Newsweek's Walter Clemens spoke for many when he called Paley, and I quote again, one of the best writers alive, end of quote. I am delighted to introduce to you Grace Paley. Grace Paley. Thanks. Oh, 
I see Princeton hasn't advanced in shortening their podiums. <laughs> Thanks. I hope you all got that. Okay. I'm, I'm going to read a, a, a prose piece. I guess it's called, if you're, ne- if you're not sure whether it's a story or a telling or a witness or whatever, call it a prose piece. Uh, but um, I'm going to read a couple of poems first just to amuse ourselves. Uh, It's called Letter. They'll all be on the proper subject, though, so it's okay. Letter. I am writing to the Chinese Association for the Study of Jewish Literature. They have asked for the addresses of a couple of other Jews, Ozick and Kazin, to be specific. Of course, there are hundreds, probably thousands, now alive, writing in Spanish and Portuguese, Russian, even German, the great languages of nations into whose histories we were admitted and began almost immediately to talk, exclaim, praise, make metaphor, despair, raise children, ask questions of the authorities in their own tongue, succeed, multiply, and finally be driven out. They say a thousand Jews fled Bombay in the 12th century travel to Kaifeng City, to live in the center of China, to live, to live, ah, into the generations they disappeared in the terrible Yahweh-defying act of assimilation. This is um, called Family. My father was brilliant, embarrassed, funny, handsome. My mother was plain, serious, principled, kind. My grandmother was intelligent, lonesome for her other life, her dead children, silent. My aunt was beautiful, bitter, angry, loving. I fell among these adjectives in earliest childhood and was nearly buried with opportunity. Some of them stuck to me. Others, finding me American and smooth, slipped away. I, have to, I, I, I didn't intend to read this one, but I think I will. It's called Vengeance. I cannot keep my mind on Jerusalem. It wanders off like an idiot with no attention span to whatever city lies outside my window that day. Damascus, the libraries of Babylonia. Oh, the five exogamous boroughs of our beloved home, New York. What will happen when the Lord remembers vengeance, which is his, and finds me? And um, I had a little poem that I wrote for the Sabbath. The five-day week. The five-day week was set like a firecracker. The five-day week. Ah, like a long bath in the first bathtub of God. The five-day week was sunny all year, I remember. The five-day week gave at last what she'd always longed for, a cheerful, noisy companion to Sabbath, Queen of Days. 
I just want to read one more, one more poem. This is called What If, and uh, I actually wrote it. Uh, well, you'll see it says, What If This Century Doesn't End? So, you know, I'm not talking about this one, right? Okay. <laughs> Although, actually, <laughs> I may be. <laughs> what if this century doesn't end? What if the Serbs continue their snarling, self-loving wrath and the Kosovars their hopeless arming? and the Hutus their vengeful slaughtering rage, and the American armed mullahs of Afghanistan their devout exclusion of the joyful life of women, and the landowners of the world their terrible return again and again to what is unrightfully theirs, and the darker people <clears throat> burning with insult and pride of population, and the Americans their deliberate impoverishment of Vietnam in order to win the lost war. What if the Israelis continue to forget that Abraham is the father also of Muhammad? What if the Palestinians remember but deny the brotherhood? And what if the Russians continue their hard job of giving up old badness just to be bad like everyone else? And the Irish unstrung on the liars of history and the Somalis clanned and unclanned and the Turks their habitual attacks on the Kurds and the Iraqis, their habitual attacks on the Kurds. What if my friend never says, stop saying, if I had six sons, I'd give them all? What if I scream, her? And she explains the idealistic politics of sacrificing sons. What if the 36 just men who repair the world year after year feel their frailty and petition that one to increase their number? What if there is no answer from time creating heaven? No sound, no interest, not a turning away, suddenly absence. What if there is no child, male or female, white or black, no mother, no child? This, um, this story might cheer you up, but on the other hand, it might not. My father addresses me on the facts of old age, offers some excellent tips. His history, he warns me continuously. I try to get a word in edgewise, but succeed infrequently. My father was teaching me how to grow old. My children didn't like this. If I knew how, they thought I would do so too easily. No, I said, this is for later, years for now. It's in case he's not around then. But listen to me, my father said, you're so distractible. Send the kids out to play. I want to tell you, now first, there are little things. Putting cream in the corners of your mouth or on the heels of your feet. But here is the main thing. I wish your mother was alive. But Pa, she never knew anything about cream, I said. I did not say she was famous for not taking care. Forget it, he said sadly. I must mention squinting, though. Don't squint. Wear your glasses, for God's sakes. Look at your aunt, so beautiful once. I know someone said men don't make passes at girls who wear glasses, but that's an idea for a foolish class of person. Sit down. Be patient. The main thing is this. When you get up in the morning, you must take your heart in your two hands. You must do this every morning. That's a metaphor, right, Pa? Metaphor? No, no, you can do it. In the morning, do a few little exercises for the joints, not too much. Then put your hands like a cup over and under the heart, under the breast. He said tactfully, it's probably easier for a man. 
Then talk softly. Don't yell. Under your ribs, push a little. When you wake up, you must do this. Massage, I mean really pat, stroke a little. Don't be ashamed. Very likely no one will be watching. Then you must talk to your heart. What do you say? Say anything. Say maybe heart, little heart. Beat softly, but never forget your job, the blood. <clears throat> you can whisper also, remember, remember. For instance, an example. I said to it yesterday, heart, heart. Do you remember my brother, how he made work for you that day when he came to the store and he said, your boss's money is in you right now? And he put a gun in my face. And I said, Grisha, are you crazy? Why don't you ask me at home? And he said, who needs your workers' money? For the movement, he said, only from your boss. Oh, little heart, you worked like a bastard, like a dog. Bang, bang that day, remember? That's the story I told my heart yesterday, my father said. And what a racket it made to answer me. I remember, I remember, I remember, till I was dizzy from the thumping. Why'd you do that, Pa? Don't you see, this is good for the old heart to remember, just as good as for the old person. Some people go running till late in life for the muscles, they say. But the heart knows the real purpose. The purpose is the expansion of the arteries, a river of blood. It cleans off the banks, carries junk out of the system. I myself would rather remind my heart how frightened I was by my brother Grisha than go running in strange neighborhoods miles and miles with the city so dangerous. I said, oh. Then I said, thanks. I don't think you listened, he said, as usual, probably worried about the kids. They're not babies anymore, you know. If you were better organized, you wouldn't have so many worries. I stopped by a couple of weeks later. <clears throat> this time he was annoyed. Why did you leave the kids home? If you do that, they'll forget who I am. Children are like old people in that respect. They won't forget you in a million years, Pa. You think so. But even God is not so good about a million years. His main interest began, actually, he put it down in writing maybe 56, 5,700 years ago. In the book. You know that book, I suppose? Yes. Well, probably a million years was too close to his lifetime. If you could call it life what he goes through. <clears throat> I believe he says a couple of times when he was still in contact with us, I am a jealous God. Here and there he makes an exception. There are trees already a 1,000 years old. I read one 3,000 in some God-forsaken place. That's how come they're still living. We should all be so God-forsaken. <clears throat> but okay, no more joking around. I've been thinking what to tell you now. First of all, soon, maybe in 20, 30 years, you'll begin to get up in the morning, 4 or 5 o'clock. In a farmer, that's okay, but for us... You will remember everything you did, you didn't do. What you omitted, who you insulted, betrayed. Betrayed, that is the worst. Do you remember you didn't go see your aunt, she was dying? That will be on your mind like a stone. I myself did not behave so well either. I was so busy those days, long office hours. Remember it was usual for doctors to make house calls, no elevators, fourth floor, fifth floor, even in a nice Bronx tenement. But just this morning, as I said, not unusual, I thought about my mother, your babushka. Did I tell you I was arrested? Of course I did. I was arrested a few times, but this time for some reason, the policeman walked me past the office. I saw my mama through the window. 
She was bringing me a bundle of clean clothes. She put it on the officer's table. She turned. She looked at me with such a face, eye to eye, despair, no hope. This morning, 4 a.m., I saw once more how she sat there, her eyes. Because of that, look, I did my term, my sentence, the best I could, finished up six months in Arkhangelsk. Then, no more, I said to myself, no more saving Imperial Russia, the great pogrom maker from itself. But I want to tell you also how the body is your enemy. I must warn you, it is not your friend like when you were a youngster. For example, greens, believe me, are overrated. <laughs> Some people, they will say they will cure cancer. It's the style now. My experience with maybe 100 patients proves otherwise. Greens are helpful to God. That fellow Sandberg, the poet, I believe, from Chicago, he explained it. Grass tiptoes over the whole world, holds it in place. Except the desert, of course. Everything there is loose, flying around. How come you bring up God so much, Pa? When I was a kid, you were a strict atheist. You even spit on the front of the synagogue and at the rabbi. Well, God is very good for conversation, he said. <laughs> By the way, I believe I have to tell you something about the stock market. Your brother-in-law is always talking how brilliant he is, investing, investing. <laughs> it's funny. My advice to you, stay out of it. But, but, Pa, people are making money a lot. Read the paper. But what if tomorrow, he asked. Well, tomorrow they'll make another million. No, 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 Pa. I mean, tomorrow. I was there when tomorrow came in 1929, he said. So I say to them in their millions, ha, 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 tomorrow will come. Came. <coughs> go home now. I have a great deal more to tell you. Somehow I'm always tired. I'll go in a minute, but I have to tell you something, Pa. I had to tell him that my husband and I were separating, maybe even divorce, the first in the family. What? What? Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? I don't understand you people nowadays. I married your mother when I was a boy. It's true I had a first-class mustache, but I was a kid. And you know, I stayed married till the end. Once or twice she wanted to part company, but not me. The reason, of course, she was inclined to be jealous. He then gave me the example I'd heard five or six times before. What it was, one time, two couples went to the movies, Arzimich and his wife, you remember? Well, I sat next to his wife, the lady of the couple, by the way, a very attractive woman. And during the show, which wasn't so great, we talked about this and that and laughed. When we go home, your mother says, okay, anytime you want. Right now, I'll give you a divorce. We will, <coughs> we will go our separate ways. Naturally, I said to her, what? Are you ridiculous? My advice to you is stick it out. It's true, your husband is a, he, he is a peculiar fellow, but think it over. Go home, stick it out at least till old age. Then, <laughs> then if you still don't get along, you could go to separate old age homes. <laughs> pa, <laughs> pa, please, it's serious, it's no joke, it's my life. Oh, it is a joke. A joke is necessary at this time, but I'm tired. You'll see in 30, 40 years from now, you'll get tired often. It doesn't mean you're sick. This is something important, I'm telling you. Listen, to live a long time, long years, you've got to sleep a certain extra percentage away. It's a shame. 
It was at least three weeks before I saw him again. He was drinking tea, eating a baked apple, one of 12. My sister baked for him every 10 days. I took another out of the refrigerator. He was reading Turgenev. Most of the time he read history. He kept Gibbon Prescott on the table next to his resting chair. But this time he was reading Turgenev. You must be very busy not to get here, he said. Then where are the kids? They're with their father? No hope, Pa. Well, by the way, you know this fellow Turgenev? He wasn't a show-off. He wrote one book. He became famous right away. One day he went to Paris, and in the evening there, he went to the opera. He stepped into his box, and just as he was sitting down, the people began to applaud. The whole opera house was clapping. He was known. Everybody knew his book. He said, I see Russia is known in France. You could learn a lot from Russian writers. It would help you out with your writing. Yes, Pot, thanks. Don't be so touchy. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Also, about Turgenev, I don't believe he was an anti-Semite. Of course, most of them were, even if they had brains. I don't think Gorky was. Gogol, probably. Tolstoy, no. Tolstoy had an opinion about the Mexican-American War, did you know? Of course, most were anti-Semites. It seems it was natural. Why is it we can read them with such interest and they don't return us the favor? That's what women writers say about men writers, I said. Please, don't start in. <laughs> I'm in the middle of telling you something you don't know. Well, I suppose you do know a few Gentiles. You're more in the American world. I know very few. Still, I was telling you, Jews were not allowed to travel in Russia. I told you that. But a Jewish girl, if she was a prostitute, could go anywhere throughout all Russia. Also, a Jew, if he was merchant, a merchant first class. Who else? A soldier who had a medal. He served a certain amount of time. Nobody could arrest him, even if he was a Jew, the soldier. If he killed someone, a policeman could not arrest him. He wore a certain hat. Why am I telling you all this? Well, it's interesting. Yes, but I'm supposed to be giving you advice, a few last words. The fact is I'm obliged to tell you a few things because you are always getting, yourselves mi uh, getting yourself mixed up in politics. You also have an idea because I was a kid running in and out of prison, also your mother, it's okay. It is not okay in this country, which is a democracy, and you're running in the street like a fool. Your cousin saw you a few years ago in school, suspended, sitting with other children in the auditorium. Anyway, Pa, what about Mama? You mentioned the Ars images. She was a dentist, wasn't she? Right, a very capable woman. Well, Mama probably felt bad about not getting to school and, you know, becoming something. I mean, she did run the whole house and the office. He was quiet for a while. Then he said, you're right. It was a shame. Everything went into me. I should graduate. I should be the doctor. I should have the profession. Poor woman. She was extremely smart, at least as smart as me. In Russia, in the movement, you know, when we were youngsters, she was considered the more valuable person, very steady, honest, made first-class contact with workers, a real organizer. I could be only an intellectual. But maybe if life didn't pass so quickly, speedy, a winter day, short, you know, you know, she was very musical, too. She had perfect pitch. A few years ago, your sister made similar remarks to me, questioning me, like history is my fault. Your brother only looked at me the way he does, disapproving. He said he did want to talk a little, but not too much, about the troubling persistence of love or sex. He said that might happen to me, too, eventually. Then accusingly, after all, I've been a man for many years, he said. Did you ever think about that? Maybe I suffered? 
Did it enter your mind? You're a grown-up woman, after all. But Pa, I wouldn't ever have thought of bringing up anything like that. You and Mama were so damn puritanical, I never heard you say the word sex till this day. Well, we were serious socialists, he said. So, I asked. He looked at me. You don't understand politics too well, do you? Actually, I had thought of it now and then, his sexual aloneness. I turned it into a tactful question. Aren't you lonely sometimes, Pa? I have a nice apartment. He closed his eyes. He rested his talking self. Then he said, anyway, only your mother, a person like her, could put up with me. Her patience, you know, I was always losing my temper. But finally, with us, everything was all right, accomplished. Do you understand? Accomplished. Big kids, finished college, got married. We got a beautiful grandchild. I was working hard like a dog. We were only 50 years old then. But look, we got the place in the country. Your sister and brother came often. Your mama was planting all kinds of flowers every minute. Trees were growing. Your grandma, your babushka, sat on a good chair on the lawn. In back of her were birch trees. I put in a nice row of spruce. Then one day in the morning, she comes to me, my wife, your mother. She shows me a spot over her left breast. I know right away. I don't touch it. I see it. In my mind, I turned it this way and that. But I know in that minute, in one minute, everything is finished. Finished, happiness, pleasure, years ahead, black. That minute had been told to me a couple of years ago, maybe twice in 10 years. Each time, it nearly stopped my heart. No. He recovered from the telling. This means, of course, that you should take care of yourself. I mean, go to the doctor on time. Nowadays, a woman as sick as your mama could live many years. Your sister, for example, after terrible operations, heart, colon, more than that, she hides from me, is running around to Carnegie Hall. She supports Lincoln Center, ballet, chambers, symphony, three, four times a week. But you must pay attention. One good thing, don't laugh, is bananas. I have to tell you, potassium, I myself eat one every day. But seriously, I'm running out of advice. It's too late to beg you to finish school, get a couple of degrees, a decent profession, be a little more strict with the children. They should be prepared for the future. Maybe they won't be lucky like you. Well, no more advice. I restrain myself. Now I'm changing the whole subject. I now ask you a favor. You have many friends, teachers, writers, intelligent people, Jews, non-Jews, these days, I think often, especially after telling you the story a couple of months ago about my brother, Grisha, I want to know what happened to him. Well, he was deported, everybody knows, in 22, right? Yes, but why did they go after him? The last 10 years before that, he calmed down quite a bit, had a nice job, I think. But that's what they did after the Palmer raids. They went here and there, picked up young people at home, the Russian Artists Club, other places, I forget. They thought a big revolution was coming from these dopey kids to imitate Russia. Even people who hated Lenin, Grisha did. Anarchists had a different view. I, I think, oh, I read at least Emma Goldman or Bakunin. I have. They were shipped somehow to Vladivostok, and there must be a file somewhere on the Internet. Why did they go after them? They were mostly Jews. Anti-Semitism probably is in the American blood from Europe. It's thinner, but it's there. But why didn't we talk all those years, me and Grisha, not talking? Me seeing sick people day and night, not talking to my brother, till all of a sudden he was there, gone, gone from me. 
Go home now. I don't have a great deal more to tell you. Anyway, it's late. I have to prepare myself now, all of my courage, not for sleep, for waking up in the early morning, maybe 3, 4 a.m. I have to be ready for your grandma's face, your mama. But most of all, to tell you the truth, it's for your aunt, my sister, the youngest one. She said to me in the hospital, don't leave me here to die. Take me home to die. And I didn't. And her face looks at me, looked at me that day, and almost every morning looks at me still. I stood near the door holding my coat, a space at last for me to say something, my mouth open. Well, he said, I had the job to tell you what to expect. Anyway, the great thing, the interesting thing is to find out about Grisha. You are smart. You can do it. Remember, it's good in this life to have something to do to take your mind off what you didn't do. Then he said, I suppose that is something like a joke. Yes, but very serious. Now my pleasure to introduce to you Marge Piercy, a prolific and searching writer. Piercy is the author of 15 novels and 14 books of poetry and currently serves as poetry editor of Tikkun. In her poems, novels, and essays, the tough realist makes common cause with the visionary utopianist. As Eleanor Langer writes in the New York Times book review, and I quote, almost alone among her American contemporaries, Marge Piercy is radical and writer simultaneously, her literary identity so indivisible that it is difficult to say where one leaves off and the other begins, end of quote. Or as Piercy herself says of the enduring promise of political poetry, I quote, that the poems may give voice to something in the experience of a life has been my intention. We can hear what we hope for and what we most fear in the small release of cadenced, cadenced utterance. I am pleased to present Marge Pearson. Marge. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not the poetry editor of Takun. I guess the corrections I did to the bio didn't get through. I haven't been for several years. I'm the poetry editor of Lilith. Uh, and an editor of Leapfrog Press. And don't do that while I'm reading. <laughs> because it blinds me. Oh, it's a poem in praise of unpopular subject, work. Because we're commanded, of course, not only to rest on Shabbat, but work the rest of the time. To be of use. The people I love the best jump into work head first without dallying in the shallows and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves, an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, 
who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Watched it smears the hands, crumbles to dust, but the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies clean and evident Greek amphoras for wine or oil, Hopi vases that held corn, are put in museums, but you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. This is Nishmat. It's the morning prayer from a, a sudur, a reconstruction of sudur that I was on, that I worked on and wrote a lot of pieces for. Nishmat. When the night slides under with the last dimming star and the red sky lightens between the trees and the heron glides tipping heavy wings in the river, when crows stir and cry out their harsh joy and the swift creatures of the night run toward their burrows and the deer raises her head and sniffs the freshening air and the shadows grow more distinct and then shorten. Then we rise into the day still clean as new snow. The cat washes its paw and greets the day with gratitude. Leviathan salutes breaching with a column of steam. The hawk turning in the sky cries out a prayer like a knife. We must wonder at the sky now thin as a speckled eggshell that now piles up its boulders of storm to crash down that now hangs a furry gray belly into the street. Every day we find a new sky and a new earth with which we are trusted like a perfect toy. We are given the salty river of our blood winding through us to remember the sea and our kindred under the waves, the hot pulsing that knocks in our throats to consider our cousins in the grass and the trees all bright scattered rivulets of life. We are given the wind within us, the breath to shape into words that steal time, that touch like hands and pierce like bullets, that waken truth and deceit, sorrow and pity and joy, that wastes precious air and complaints and lies and floating traps for power on the dirty air, yet holy breath still stretches our lungs to sing. We are given the body that momentary kibbutz of elements that belong to frog and polar bear, corn and oak tree, volcano and glacier. We are lent for a time these minerals and water and a morning every day, a morning to wake up, rejoice and praise life in our spines, our throats, our knees, our genitals, our brains, our tongues. 
We are given fire to see against the dark, to think, to read, to study how we are to live, to bank in ourselves against defeat and despair, that cool and muddy our resolve, that make us forget what we saw we must do. We are given passion to rise like the sun in our minds with a new day and burn the debris of habit and greed and fear. We stand in the midst of the burning world, primed to burn with compassionate love and justice, to turn inward and find holy fire at the core, to turn outward and see the world that is all of one flesh with us, see under the trash, through the smog, the furry bee and the apple blossom, the trout leaping, the candles ancestors lit for us. Fill us as the tide rustles into the reeds in the marsh. Fill us as the rushing water overflows the pitcher. Fill us as light fills a room with its dancing. Let the little quarrels of the bones and the snarling of the lesser appetites and the whining of the ego cease. Let silence still us so you may show us your shining and we can out of that stillness rise and praise. On Shabbat, she dances in the candle flames. How we danced then, you can't imagine, my grandmother said. We danced till we were dizzy. We danced till the room spun like a dreidel. We danced ourselves drunk and giddy. We danced till we fell panting. We were poor, my grandmother said. A few potatoes, some half-rotten beans, greens from the hedgerow. But then on Shabbat, we ate a chicken. The candles shone on the golden skin. We drank sweet wine and flew up to the ceiling. How I loved him, you can't imagine, my grandmother said. He was from St. Petersburg. My father could scarcely believe he was a Jew he dressed so fine. His eyes burned when he looked at me. He quoted Pushkin instead of Mishnah. Nine languages and still the Tsar wanted him in the army where Jews went off but never returned. My father married us from his deathbed. We escaped under a load of straw. You can't imagine, we were frightened mice. Eleven children I bore, my grandmother said. Nine who grew up, four who died before me. Now I see in your ear. When you pray, I stand beside you. Elijah's cup at the Seder table is for me who cooked and never sat down. Now I sit enthroned on your computer. Now I am the queen of dust-mop tales. I preside over your memory, lighting candles that summon the dead. I touch your lids while you sleep, and when you wake, you remember me. Belly Good. A heap of wheat, says a song of songs, but I've never seen wheat in a pile. Apples, potatoes, cabbages, carrots make lumpy stacks, but you are sleek as a seal hauled out in the winter sun. I can see you as a great goose egg, or a single juicy and fully ripe peach. You swell like a natural grassy hill. You are symmetrical as a hopewell mound with the eye of the navel wide open. The eye of my apple. The pear's port window. 
You're not supposed to exist at all this decade. You're to be flat as a kitchen table so children with roller skates can speed over you like those sidewalks of my childhood that gave each a different roar under my wheels. You're required to show muscle striations like the ocean sand at ebb tide but brick hard. Clothing is not designed for women of whose warm and flagrant bodies you are a swelling part. Yet I confess, I meditate with my hands folded on you, a maternal cushion radiating comfort. Even when I've been at my skinniest, you've never abandoned me, but curled round as a sleeping cat under my skirt. When I spread out, so do you. You like to eat, drink, and bang on another belly. In anxiety, I clutch you with nervous fingers as if you were a purse full of calm. In my grandmother standing in the fierce sun, I see her cauldron that held eleven children shaped under the tent of her summer dress. I see when my mother at thirty in her flapper gear, skinny legs, and then you knocking on the tight dress. We hand you down like a prize feather quilt. You are our female shame and sunburst strength. Uh, if you've ever tried to get a recipe from anyone in your family, this is called My Mother Gives Me Her Recipe. Take some flour. Oh, I don't know, two, three cups. And you get cut in the butter. Now, some women, they make it with shortening, but I say butter, even though that means you have to have fish, see? You cut up some apples, not those stupid sweet ones. Apples for the cake, they have to have some bite, you know. A little sour and the sweet, like love. You slice them into little moons. No, no, like half a crescent moons. You aren't listening. You mix sugar and cinnamon and cloves. Some women use allspice till it's dark, and you stir in the apples. You coat every little moon. Did I say you add milk? Oh, just till it feels right. Use your hands. Milk in the cake part. Then you pat it into a pan. I like round ones, but who cares? I forgot to say you add baking powder. <laughs> oh, did I forget a little lemon on the apples? Then you bake it. Well, till it's done, of course. <laughs> Did I remember you placed the apples in rows? You can make a pattern like a weave. It's pretty that way. I like things pretty. It's just a simple cake. Any fool can make it except your aunt. I gave her the recipe, but she never got it right. <laughs> I did finally learn how to make it, but it was out of a Jewish cookbook. <laughs> Whoops, wrong page. Uh, this is a couple of poems. Uh, that's from my, my Haggadah that I've been working on forever. This is matzah. Flat you are as a doormat and as homely. No crust, no glaze. You lack a cosmetic glow. You break with a snap. You're dry as a twig split from an oak in midwinter. You're bumpy as a mud basin. 
in a drought. Square as a slab of pavement, you have no inside to hide raisins or seeds. You're pale as the full moon pocked with craters. What we see is what we get, honest, plain, dry, shining with nostalgia as if baked with light instead of heat. The bread of flight and haste in the mouth you promise home. And this is Magid from, also from Ayagata. The courage to let go of the door, the handle, the courage to shed the familiar walls whose very stains and leaks are comfortable as the little moles of the upper arm, stains that recall a feast, a child's naughtiness, a loud blattering storm that slapped the roof hard, pouring through. The courage to abandon the graves dug into the hill, the small bones of children and the brittle bones of the old whose marrow hunger had stolen, the courage to desert the tree planted and only begun to bear, the riverside where promises were shaped, the street where their empty pots were broken. To the courage to leave the place whose language you learned as early as your own, whose customs, however dangerous or demeaning, bind you like a halter you have learned to move inside, to move your load, the land fertile with the blood spilled on it, the roads mapped and annotated for survival, the courage to walk out of the pain that is known into the pain that cannot be imagined, mapless, walking into the wilderness, going barefoot with a canteen into the desert, stuffed in the stinking hold of a rotting ship, sailing off the map into dragon's mouths, Cathay, India, Siberia, Golden and Medina, leaving bodies by the way like abandoned treasure, so they walked out of Egypt. So they bribed their way out of Russia under loads of straw. So they steamed out of the bloody smoking charnel house of Europe on overloaded freighters forbidden all ports. Out of pain into death or freedom or a different painful dignity into squalor and politics. We Jews are all born of wanderers with shoes under our pillows and a memory of blood that is ours raining down. We honor only those Jews who changed tonight, those who chose the desert over bondage, who walked into the strange and became strangers and gave birth to children who could look down on them standing on their shoulders for having been slaves. We honor those who let go of everything but freedom, who ran, who revolted, who fought, who became other by saving themselves. And the last poem I'll read is The Art of Blessing the Day. This is a blessing for rain after drought. Come down, wash the air so it shimmers, a perfumed cloud of lavender chiffon. Let the parched leaves suckle and swell. Enter my skin, wash me for the little chrysalis of sleep rocked in your plashing. 
In the morning, the world is peeled, is shining. This is a blessing for sun after long rain. Now everything shakes itself free and rises. The trees are bright as pushcart ices. Every last lily opens its satin thighs. The bees dance and roll in pollen. And the cardinal at the top of the pine sings at full throttle fountaining. This is the blessing for a ripe peach. This is luck made round. Frost can nip the blossom, kill the bee. It can drop a hard green useless nut. Brown fungus, the burrowing worm that coils in rot, can blemish it and wind crush it to the ground. Yet this peach fills my mouth with juicy sun. This is the blessing for the first garden tomato. Those green boxes of tasteless acid the store sells in January. Those red things with the savor of wet chalk. They mock your fragrant name. How fat and sweet you are weighing down my palm. Warm as the flank of a cow in the sun. You are the savor of summer in a thin red skin. This is a blessing for a political victory, although I shall not forget that things work in increments and epicycles and sometimes leaps that half the time fall back down. Let's not relinquish dancing while the music fits into our hips and bounces our heels. We must never forget pleasure is real as pain. The blessing for the return of a favorite cat, the blessing for love return, for friends return, for money received unexpected, the blessing for the rising of the bread, the sun, the oppressed. I'm not sentimental about old men bumbling the Hebrew by rote with no more feeling than one says Gesundheit. But the discipline of blessings is to taste each moment, the bitter, the sour, the sweet, and the salty, and be glad for what does not hurt. The art is in compressing attention to each little and big blossom of the tree of life, to let the tongue sing each fruit, its savor, its aroma, and its use. Attention is love. What we must give children, mothers, fathers, pets, our friends, the news, the woes of others. What we want to change, we curse and then pick up a tool. Bless whatever you can with eyes and hands and tongue. If you can't bless it, get ready to make it new. Thank you. Now my pleasure to introduce Robert Pinsky, who served an unprecedented three terms as our nation's poet laureate and embraced his office with extraordinary energy and commitment. His tenure was marked by ambitious efforts to prove the power of poetry, not just as an intellectual pursuit, but as a meaningful part of everyday life. His renowned favorite poem project, for example, documented the role poetry plays in the lives of Americans young, middle-aged, and elderly, immigrant, and native-born, and from every walk of life. Let me quote 
Pinsky on poetry as follows, and I quote, I think poetry is a vital part of our intelligence, our ability to learn, our ability to remember, the relationship between our bodies and our minds. It is one of the most fundamental pleasures a person can experience. A distinguished critic and translator of a stunning new version of Dante's Inferno, Pinsky also received the Pulitzer Prize nomination for his collection, The Figured Wheel, and recently added a new collection, Jersey Rain, to his distinguished publications. I'm delighted to welcome back to Princeton and introduce to you today, Robert Pinsky. Bob. Many thanks. Uh, I will say three poems to you. Um, the uh, first one and the last one are extremely short, and the one in the middle will take about 10 minutes. Each of them has to do with uh, an aspect of uh, Jewish culture, as I've experienced it, that I admire and that I feel has uh, soaked into my writing. The first poem is, I suppose, to do with um, learning a language phonetically and learning the alphabet of the language, never quite really learning much of the language's meaning, though you can hear its beauty in cantorial singing. The poem contains 26 words, and they are arranged in alphabetical order. It also contains marks of punctuation, including an equal sign, and when I come to the equal sign, I will pronounce it. The poem is called ABC. ABC. Anybody can die, evidently. Few go happily, irradiating joy, knowledge, love. Many need oblivion, painkillers, quickest respite. Sweet time unafflicted, various world, X equals your zenith. The second poem is the long one, and I warn you that it contains two jokes. <laughs> Jews, like Irish people and Southerners, often like to tell jokes. When I say joke, I don't mean a witty remark. I mean like, the Pope, a mule, and an orthodontist go into a bar, and, and then there's a punchline. <clears throat> I'll tell you that one later. <laughs> Impossible to tell. Impossible to tell. To Robert Hass and in memory of Elliot Gilbert. Slow dulcimer, gavotte and bow. In autumn, Basho and his friends go out to view the moon. In summer, gasoline rainbow in the gutter, the secret courtesy that courses like Icor through the old form of the rude, full-scale joke, impossible to tell in writing. Basho, he named himself. Banana tree, banana after the plant some grateful students gave him, maybe in appreciation of his guidance threading a long night through the rules and channels of their collaborative linking poem scored in their teacher's heart, live, rigid, fluid, like passages etched in a microscopic circuit. 
Eliot had in his memories so many jokes they seemed to breed like microbes in a culture inside his brain. One so much making another it was impossible to tell them all. In the court culture of jokes, a top banana. Imagine a court of one, the queen, a young mother, unhappy, alone all day with her firstborn child and new baby in a squalid apartment of too few rooms a different race from her neighbors. She tells the child she's going to kill herself. She broods, she rages. Hoping to distract her, the child cuts capers. He sings, he does imitations of different people in the building. He jokes, he feels if he can keep her alive till the father gets home from work, they'll be okay till morning. It's laughter versus the bedroom and the pills. What is he in his efforts but a courtier? impossible to tell his whole delusion. In the first months when I had moved back east from California and had to leave a message on Bob's machine, I used to make a habit of telling the tape a joke. And partway through, I would pretend that I forgot the punchline or make believe that I was interrupted, as though he'd be so eager to hear the end he'd have to call me back. <laughs> the joke was Elliot's more often than not. The doctors made the blunder that killed him sometime later that same year. One day when I got home, I found a message on my machine from Bob. He had a story about two rabbis, one of them tall, one short. One day while walking along the street together, the rabbis see the corpse of a Chinese man before them. And Bob said, sorry, he forgot the rest. Of course, he thought that his joke was a dummy impossible to tell, a dead-end challenge. But here it is, as Eliot told it to me. The dead man's widow came to the rabbis weeping, begging them if they could to resurrect him. Shocked, the tall rabbi said absolutely not, but the short rabbi told her to bring the body into the study house and ordered the shutters closed so the room was night dark. Then he prayed over the body, chanting a secret blessing out of Kabbalah. Arise and breathe, he shouted, but nothing happened. The body lay still. So then the little rabbi called for hundreds of candles and danced around the body, chanting and praying in Hebrew, then Yiddish, then Aramaic. He prayed in Turkish and Egyptian and Old Galician for nearly three hours, leaping about the coffin in the candlelight so that his tiny black shoes seemed not to touch the floor. With one last prayer, sobbed in the Spanish of before the Inquisition, he stopped exhausted, and looked in the dead man's face. Panting, he raised both arms in a mystic gesture and said, Arise and breathe. And still the body lay as before. Impossible to tell in words how Eliot's eyebrows flailed and snorted like shaggy mammoths as the Chinese widow granting permission, the little rabbi sang the blessing for performing a circumcision and removed the dead man's foreskin, chanting blessings in Finnish and Swahili and bathed the corpse from head to foot, and with a final prayer in Babylonian, gasping with exhaustion, he seized the dead man's head and kissed the lips and dropped it again, and leaping back, commanded, Arise and breathe. The corpse lay still as ever. At this, as when Basho's disciples wind along the curving spine that links the ringa across the different voices, 
each one adding a transformation according to the rules of stasis and repetition, all in order and yet impossible to tell beforehand. Eliot changes for the punchline. The wee rabbi, still panting like a startled boxer, looks at the dead one, then up at all those watching, a kind of Mel Brooks gesture. Who boy, he says. Now that's what I call really dead. <laughs> o mortal powers and princes of earth, and you immortal lords of the underground and afterlife, Jehovah, Ra, Bolmora, Hecate, Pluto, what has a brilliant living soul to do with your harps and fires and boats, your bric-a-brac and troughs of smoking blood? Provincial stinkers, our languages don't touch you. You're like that mother whose small child entertained her to beg her life. Possibly he grew up to be the tall rabbi, the one who washed his hands of all these capers right at the outset. Or maybe he became the author of these lines, a one-man ringa, the one for whom it seems to be impossible to tell a story straight. It was a routine procedure. When it was finished, the physicians told Sandra and the kids it had succeeded, but Elliot wouldn't wake up for maybe an hour. They should go eat. The two of them loved to bicker in a way that on his side went back to Yiddish, on Sandra's to some Sicilian dialect. He used to scold her endlessly for smoking. When she got back from dinner with their children, the doctors had to tell them about the mistake. Oh, swirling petals. Oh, falling leaves, the movement of linking ringa coursing from moment to moment is meaning, Bob says in his haiku book. Oh, swirling petals, all living things are contingent, oh, falling leaves and transient, and they suffer. But the universal is the goal of jokes, especially certain ethnic jokes, which taper down through the swirling funnel of tongues and gestures toward their preposterous Ithaca. There's one a journalist told me. He heard it while a hero of the South African freedom movement was speaking to elderly Jews. The speaker's own right arm had been blown off by right-wing litter bombers. He told his listeners they had to cast their ballots for the ANC, a group the old Jews feared as in with the Arabs. But they started weeping as the old one-armed fighter told them their country needed them to vote for what was right. Their vote could make a country their children could return to from London and Chicago. The moved old people applauded wildly, and the speaker's friend whispered to the journalist, It's the Belgian army joke come to life. I wish that I could tell it to Elliot. In the Belgian army, the feud between the Flemings and Walloons grew vicious. So out of hand, the army could barely function. Finally, one commander assembled his men in one great room to deal with things directly. They stood before him at attention. All Flemings, he ordered, to the left wall. Half the men clustered to the left. Now all Walloons, he ordered, move to the right. An equal number crowded against the right wall. Only one man remained at attention in the middle. What are you, soldier? Saluting, the man said, Sir, I am a Belgian. Why, that's astonishing, Corporal. What's your name? Saluting again, Rabinowitz, he answered. <laughs> a joke that seems at first to be a story about the Jews. 
but as the ringer reaches to describe religious meaning by moving and drifting petals and brittle leaves that touch and die and suffer the changing winds that riffle the gutter's swirl. So in the joke, just under the raucous music of Fleming, Jew, Walloon, a courtly allegiance moves to the dulcimer, gavat, and bow. Over the banana tree, the moon in autumn, allegiance to a state impossible to tell. The last poem is short. It's called Victrola. People who are too young to know what it means, somebody old can translate it for you. We have to be useful for something. Victrola. Dead forty years, bird brings his lips to the reed. He rules the roost and rules the rest. Do what, Jarabap? Recovered from shell shock, the war veteran Hitler found the doctor who cured his hysterical deafness and had the man killed hoping that I might never exist to tell the story here, a little distorted. But Illinois Jaquette playing round midnight on the bassoon, better even than the death speech of Falstaff. And listen, Moshe Lieb Halpern, I have a miracle cabinet made in Japan. Listen. Our next reader is Susan Sontag, critic, essayist, novelist, activist, and filmmaker. Susan Sontag has taught at City College, Sarah Lawrence, Columbia, and Rutgers, amongst other institutions. But her career has largely taken place outside the collegial entanglements of the academy. And there she has flourished, writing landmark volumes of literary and cultural criticism, from against interpretation to illness as metaphor to on photography. The New York Times Book Review, David Bromwich wrote, and again I quote, Sontag appears to keep up, she keeps up, appears at times to do all the keeping up for a whole generation. From ground to summit, from oblivion to oblivion, she covers the big movements. Much in demand as a speaker, she's been honored with fellowships from the Rockefeller, Guggenheim, and MacArthur Foundations, amongst many others. Her recent novel, In America, received the National Book Reward. And I'm delighted and honored to welcome here to Princeton, Susan Sontag. Well, of course, I don't think keeping up is a very important activity, but I guess some people do. Um, I'm principally a fiction writer, and I would like to uh, 
read from uh, some parts of my uh, recent novel in America, from parts of the uh, prologue. Uh, one of the reasons I chose uh, uh, parts of this prologue chapter, what I call the zero chapter of the recent uh, novel, uh, is because um, this is the first time I have ever, uh, to my knowledge, been called a Jewish-American writer. And uh, I, I say that humbly. I, uh, I don't mean to be contentious. But I have never thought of myself as a Jewish-American writer. Uh, but apparently I am. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Um, I don't feel that in my work uh, there are uh, themes that are generally associated with uh, Jewish-American literature. It may have something to do with the fact that um, I'm almost 70, and it is my great-grandparents who came to this country whom I did not know. And not, so I have been from a family that is uh, secular and American uh, for three generations. I had absolutely no Jewish background whatsoever. I had an Irish Catholic nurse who took me to um, Mass every Sunday throughout my childhood. And it was only when I moved to New York that I, and I was 26 that I actually thought, oh, I, I guess I'm Jewish, because people in New York City uh, seemed so interested in that, and it seemed very interesting to me, too. But I grew up in the Southwest uh, and knew it was absolutely cut off from the uh, immigrant, urban immigrant uh, Jewish culture, uh, which has nourished so many great American writers of Jewish origin. I say that, as, as to repeat, uh, neither contentiously uh, not proudly or defensively, it is uh, just a fact. So, of course, I thought, well, did I ever say anything about being Jewish or anything about being Jewish in anything I ever wrote? Um, I certainly didn't in any essay I ever wrote, uh, nor any of fiction of, of, of stories, novels, plays, except I did find something. So, that, of course, in honor of this wonderful uh, occasion <laughs> and being in the company of these writers, uh, my colleagues whom I admire, uh, and and, and uh, because of this gift and, and uh, to the Princeton Library, of course, I want to read something Jewish. This was all I could find. Uh, <laughs> the last uh, novel um, is about Polish, uh, some Polish people who come to America in 1876. They're not Jews. Um, and uh, the, main, the main person is, is a great uh, actress, and it is a, an immigration novel. Uh, it's a theater novel, uh, but there aren't any, any Jews uh, in, in the novel. These are uh, well-educated, uh, in some cases upper-class, uh, Polish uh, intellectuals uh, who come to, to this country to start a, a commune, actually, and they settle in, in Southern California in a little village called Anaheim, uh, which is near another little village called Los Angeles. Uh, and what I imagine in the zero chapter is that, that an alter ego me to whom I have lent some features of my uh, own uh, biography uh, time travels back to Krakow in the 1870, crashes a party in which, which has been given for the actress, but of course the alter ego voice doesn't know uh, what's happening at first, so that, that 
opening prologue chapter is both a parable about how you make up a story and, of course, the introduction of the story. So I'll just read a little bit from the beginning and a little bit from the end. And then there's a little Jewish part, which I found. So this is how In America begins. Irresolute. No. Shivering. I crashed a party in the private dining room of a hotel. It felt wintry indoors, too, but none of the women in gowns and men in frock coats churning about the long, dark-hued room seemed to mind the chill. So I had the tile stove in a corner all to myself. I hugged the fat, ceiling-high contraption. I would have preferred a hearth full of roaring fire, but I was here where rooms are heated by stoves. And then I set to kneading some warmth back into my cheeks and palms. When I got warmer or calmer, I ventured across my end of the room from a window through the thick scrim of soundlessly dropping snowflakes backlit by a ring of moonlight. I looked down on the row of sledges and horse cabs, on the coachmen swathed in coarse blankets, dozing in their seats, on the rigid snow-dappled animals with bowed heads. I heard the bells of a nearby church strike ten. Some guests had bunched near the huge oak sideboard by the window. Half turning, I tuned into their conversation, which was mostly in a language I don't know, I was in a country I'd visited only once, 13 years ago. But somehow, I didn't question how, their words reached me as sense. It was something vehement about a woman and a man, a scrap of information I promptly upgraded by assuming that the two were, well, why not, married. Then, with equal vehemence, the talk concerned a woman and two men. So, never doubting that the woman was the same, I suppose that the first man was her husband, and the second must be her lover, chiding myself for imagining so conventionally. But whether the woman and the man or the woman and two men, I still hadn't understood why they were being discussed. If the story, story were familiar to everyone, there would, of course, be no need to recount it. But maybe the guests were deliberately speaking so as not to be understood too well, too well because, say, the woman and the man, or both men, if there were two, were also here at the party. This made me think of looking one by one at the women in the room, all buoyantly coiffed, and, as far as I'm any judge of the clothes of that time, stylishly dressed, to see if one stood out from the others. As soon as I looked, looked with this thought in mind, I saw her and wondered why I hadn't noticed her before. No longer in her first youth, as people then said of an attractive woman past 30, of medium height, straight-spined, with a pile of ash-blonde hair into which she nervously tucked a few escaping strands. She was not exceptionally beautiful, but she became more compelling the longer I watched her. She could be, she must be, the woman they were discussing. When she moved about the room, she was always surrounded. When she spoke, she was always listened to. It seemed to me I'd caught her name. It was either Helena or Marina. 
And supposing it would help me to decipher the story if I could identify the couple or the trio, what better start than to give them names? I decided to think of her as Marina. Then I looked for the two men. First, I trawled for one who could be thought of as a husband, if he were a doting husband, as I imagined this Helena, I mean Marina, would have, then I'd find him close to her, never distracted for long by anyone else. And sure enough, keeping Marina in my sight lined, it seemed obvious now that she was the one giving the party or it was being given in her honor. I saw her being trailed by an angular bearded man with fine blonde hair combed to the back that left uncovered his high, powerfully arched and noble forehead, who was nodding affably at whatever she said. That must be the husband, I thought. Now I had to find the other man who, if he was the lover or just as interestingly turned out not to be the lover, would probably be younger than the amiable-looking aristocrat. And so on and so on. Uh, the, the story is built, as it were, the people in the room are auditioned uh, for their part in the story to come, which constitutes uh, the body of the novel. And the the fly on the wall, the time traveler, the alter ego, me. It isn't really me, but has some details of life in common with me. Um, circles around, eavesdropping on conversations. They seem to be talking about something that a few of them are going to do, which shocks very much most of the people. Of course, it's that they're going to America, that she's giving up this great career. She is the greatest actress in Poland, a national heroine. Um, and throughout the chapter they go and they sit at dinner and many many characters are introduced including a, uh, a, a doctor who was sort of taken from Uncle Vanya uh, one of those Chekhov doctors a lonely bachelor who's, who's in love with the married uh, heroine and uh, many things are introduced, many stories are t told, sub-stories as as the cast and situation of the novel is introduced in this prologue chapter. The evening goes on, and uh, here's uh, the last part of the prologue chapter, the zero chapter of In America. Uh, Marina has just been reciting uh, Shakespeare. Um, Marina lifted her arms and declaimed in her warm alto tone. Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end, each changing place with that which goes before in sequent toil, all forwards to contend. And for a few minutes I didn't realize she was reciting in English. I can't say what I thought at first I was hearing, since I wouldn't have been startled to hear any language spoken at this gathering, except Russian, the language of the most hated of the nation's three oppressors. Another foreign language I don't know, but somehow tonight was able to understand. Meanwhile, the young actress had burst out with, that's a protege of Marina's, Therefore devise with me how we may fly, whither to go, and what to bear with us, and do not seek to take your change upon you to bear your griefs yourself and leave me out. For by this heaven, now at our sorrows pale, say what thou canst, I'll go along with thee. Her shiny voice trembled, stopped.
If you were familiar with As You Like It, you would have recognized the lines. Of course, she would be Celia to Marina's Rosalind. Though they were barely intelligible, her accent being even thicker than Marina's. She, Marina, was not looking pleased. I butchered Shakespeare's glorious English, I heard her say to the drama critic who was sitting on her left. Not on her left. Not at all, he exclaimed. You said it beautifully. I did not, Marina answered sharply. And in truth, she had not. I hoped they would do better when they spoke more English, as I suspected they were going to do, if I understood anything about what was being discussed. Undoubtedly, they will continue to speak English with an accent, as do many people in my country, as did my great-grandparents, whom I did not know, though naturally their children did not. For it should be mentioned, why not here, that all four of my great-grandparents were born in this country, hence born in a country that had ceased to exist some 80 years earlier, indeed born around the very year to which I'd traveled in my mind in order to co-inhabit this room with its old-timey conversations, though the folks who engendered the couple that engendered me were quite unlike these people, being poor, unworldly villagers with occupations like peddler, innkeeper, woodcutter, Talmud student. Having assumed that nobody here was a Jew, I hoped, this was a new thought, that I wouldn't hear an anti-Semitic outburst from someone. I hadn't, and somehow intuited that they were, if anything, philo-Semites. That this was the country my forebears chose to leave by crowded steerage hardly links me to these people, though conceivably it might make the name of this country resonate for me, might draw me to a room here rather than elsewhere, having tried conjuring up a hotel dining room from the same era in Sarajevo and failed. I had to accept where I had alighted. But the past is the biggest country of all, and there's a reason one gives in to the desire to set stories in the past. Almost everything good seems located in the past. Perhaps that's an illusion, but I feel nostalgic for every era before I was born. And one is freer of modern inhibitions, perhaps because one bears no responsibility for the past. S sometimes I feel simply ashamed of the time in which I live. And this past will also be the present, because it was I in the private dining room of the hotel. <coughs> Excuse me. Because it was I in the private dining room of the hotel, scattering seeds of prediction. I did not belong there. I was an alien presence. I would have to lean very close to here, and I would not understand everything. But even what I misunderstood would be a kind of truth, if only about the time in which I live, rather than the one in which their story took place. We must always ask more of ourselves, I heard Marina say sternly. Always. Or am I speaking only for myself? Ah, that was an endearing note. I have a weakness for the earnest, the strenuous. 
If I thought of Marina as a character in a novel, I would have liked her to have something of Dorothea Brooke. I remember when I first read Middlemarch, I had just turned 18, and a third of the way through the book burst into tears because I realized not only that I was Dorothea, but that a few months earlier I had married Mr. Kasabin. <laughs> Yet there was nothing submissive or self-effacing. I could see that in this woman with the ash blonde hair and the candid, intense, blue-gray eyes. She would want to do good for others, but she would never be seduced into forgetting herself. For someone whose ambition was to go on the stage, being female was not an obstacle. She had lived the competitive life and she had won. But I thought I could put up with a good deal of vanity and self-love as long as she kept the desire for self-improvement, which I guessed she would as I studied the contrast between the impatient, over-watchful expressions crossing her face and that peculiar way she had of holding herself very, very still. No one fidgeted. I hadn't spied any hanky-panky under the table. No, no one had faded, except, of course, the little boy curled up on another woman's lap, rubbing his eyes instead of home, tucked in his bed. He must be an only child. His mother must have wanted him near tonight, even though I hadn't seen Marina pay any attention to him for these last two hours at the table. They did seem to me, for all their flashes of agitation about the subject engaging them, a bit too sedate. To what could I attribute their immobility? The overcooked food continuing to be urged on the table, the perennial ineffectuality of the thinking classes, the ponderousness of the late 19th century, my own reluctance to imagine anything livelier. True, there was still time for something really vivid to happen. Someone might have a heart attack, or whack a dinner partner over the head, or sob and groan, or toss a glass of wine in an offending face. But this seemed as unlikely as my charging out of my window seat to dance on the table, or spit in the soup, or fondle a knee, or bite someone's ankle. Humid thoughts. I needed some air. Some of them must have been restless, but no one would stand until Marina did. I'd almost given up hoping that their argument about the rightness or wrongness of whatever they were discussing would reach a climax this evening, no matter how long they stayed at the table, and I remained nearby gazing at them, listening to them, thinking about them. For it's the nature of such debates, the debate about rightness and about wrongness, that you can always have misgivings and a new thought the next day, that looking back on the evening's conversation, you may exclaim, what a fool I was to say that, or agree to that. Was I under the influence of so-and-so, or just being dopey or thoughtless, my moral thermostat turned down? So the next morning you're of the opposite mind. Perhaps you think the opposite precisely of what you argued for the night before, that opinion having needed an airing in order to make way for this better one. And you have something like a moral hangover, but you feel calm because you know now you're on the right track, while uneasily suspecting 
you could still think something different tomorrow. And meanwhile, the time for the decision you are weighing, the course of action you may or may not follow is approaching. It may be right now. Then Marina did rise and took a cigarette from her gold-beaded reticule and glided to the center of the room. The others stood up, and I assumed they would all leave now. But only Richard exuberantly kissed Marina's hand and then made the rounds, touching his lips to the wrist of each of the other women in the room. I suppose he was looking forward to capping the evening with a stop in his favorite bordello. Then the director of the theater and his wife took their leave, followed by the banker and the judge and their wives, then the leading actor and the stage manager and a few others. Nobody else seemed about to go. The doctor opened a bottle of Tokai on the sideboard. The little boy, Piotr, so I belatedly named him, who had been awakened and made ready for departure, was set to wait on a wing chair. Marina leaned with a fetching show of languor against the back of the chair, surrounded by her husband, Tadush, the young actress, the impresario, Bogdan's sister, the doctor, and the one-legged painter. Here was one last chance for the conversation to ripen and their decision to be cinched like a purse. Well, of course, said Marina, laughing emphatically, I don't always agree with myself. An encouraging thought. They went on talking quietly. I would go on listening. And I thought if I listened and watched and ruminated, taking as much time as I needed, I could understand the people in this room, that theirs would be a story that would speak to me, though how I knew this, I can't explain. There are so many stories to tell, it's hard to say why it's one rather than another. It must be because with this story, you feel you can tell many stories, that there will be a necessity in it. I see I'm explaining badly. I can't explain. It has to be something like falling in love. Whatever explains why you chose this story, it may indeed draw sap from some childhood grief or longing, hasn't explained much. A story, I mean a long story, a novel, is like an around the world in 80 days. You can barely recall the beginning when it comes to an end. But even a long journey must begin somewhere, say, in a room. Each of us carries a room within ourselves waiting to be furnished and peopled. And if you listen closely, you may need to silence everything in your own room. You can hear the sounds of that other room inside your head. You can hear the fire crackling or the clock ticking or if the window is open, the cry of a coachman or the vroom vroom of a motorcycle in the alley. Or you may not hear any of this if the room is full of voices. Raucous or soft-mannered people may be sitting down to dinner, saying something you don't quite understand. Let's hope not because the television is on and full blast. But you'll catch the gist. First, it will be only phrases or a name or an urgent whisper, or a cry. If there are cries, no, screams, and you see something like a bed, you can hope that this isn't a room where someone is being tortured, but rather where someone is giving birth, 
although these sounds are also unbearable. You can hope that you have found yourself among large-hearted people. Passion is a beautiful thing, and so is understanding, the coming to understand something, which is a passion, which is a journey, too. The servants were bringing Marina and the others their wraps. They were ready to leave now. With a shiver of anticipation, I decided to follow them out into the world. Thank you. Our last reader this afternoon is C.K. Williams. C.K. Williams, who we are proud to have as a Princeton colleague, is the winner of numerous awards and prizes for his distinguished poems. In 1999, his volume, Repair, garnered both the Pulitzer Prize and the Los Angeles Times Book Award. A translator of Sophocles and Euripides, Williams writes long, arcing lines that are his and his alone. They probe, lament, and meditate but never squander William's remarkable resources of language and emotion. His subject matter has developed from political and social protest in his earlier work into the complex relations between public and private lives in modern urban America. His most recent book is a memoir entitled Misgivings, My Mother, My Father, Myself. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you our colleague, C.K. Williams. I'll begin with a poem that's not particularly anything Jewish, except it takes place in New Jersey. <laughs> Robert is from New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey. Allen Ginsberg was from New Jersey and Philip Roth. And you will find when you go to the amazing exhibit at the library, Dorothy Parker was from Long Branch, New Jersey. Her name was Dorothy Rothschild. I didn't know until I saw the exhibit. There are all sorts of wonderful things in that exhibit. So this is a poem that takes place in New Jersey in which probably many of the characters are Jewish. It's called The Dress. In those days, those days which exist for me only as the most elusive memory now, when often the first sound you'd hear in the morning would be a storm of bird song, then the soft clop of the hooves of the horse hauling a milk wagon down your block. And the last sound at night, as likely as not, would be your father pulling up in his car, having worked late again, always late, and going heavily down to the cellar, to the furnace, to shake out the ashes and damp the draft, before he came upstairs to fall into bed. In those long-ago days, women, my mother, my friends' mothers, our neighbors, all the women I knew wore, often much of the day, what were called house dresses, cheap, printed, pulpy, seemingly purposefully shapeless, light cotton shifts that you wore over your nightgown, and when you had to go out to look for a child, hang wash on the line, or run down to the grocery store on the corner under a coat, 
the twisted hem of the nightgown, always lank and yellowed, dangling beneath. More than the curlers some of the women seem constantly to have in their hair in preparation for some great event, a ball, one would think, that never came to pass. More than the way most women's faces not only were never made up during the day, but seemed scraped, bleached, and with their plucked eyebrows scarily mask-like. More than all that, It was those dresses that made women so unknowable and forbidding, adepts of enigmas to which men could have no access and boys no conception. Only later would I see the dresses also as a proclamation that in your dim kitchen, your laundry, your bleak concrete yard, what you revealed of yourself was a fabulation, your real sensual nature veiled in those sexless vestments was utterly your dominion. In those days, one hid much else as well. Grown men didn't embrace one another unless someone had died, and not always then. You shook hands or at a ball game thumped your friends back and exchanged blows meant to be codes for affection. Once out of childhood, you'd never again know the shock of your father's whiskers on your cheek, not until mores at last had evolved and you could hug another man, then hold on for a moment, then even kiss your father's bristles stiff and white now. What release, finally, the embrace. Though we were wary, it seemed so audacious how much unspoken joy there was in that affirmation of equality and communion, no matter how much misunderstanding and pain had passed between you by then. We knew so little in those days, as little as now, I suppose, about healing those hurts. Even the women in their best dresses with beads and sequins sewn on the bodices, even in lipstick and mascara, their hair aflow, could only stand wringing their hands, begging for peace, while father and son, like thugs, like thieves, like Romans, simmered and hissed and hated, inflicting sorrows that endured the worst any way through the kiss and embrace, bleeding from brother to brother into the generations. In those days, there was still countryside close to the city, farms, cornfields, cows, even not far from our building with its blurred brick and long shadowy hallway, you could find tracts with hills and trees you could pretend were mountains and forests or you could go out by yourself even to a half-block-long empty lot into the bushes. Like a creature of leaves, you'd lurk, crouched, crawling, simplified, savage, alone. Already there was wanting to be simpler, wanting, when they called you, never to go back. This is called Old Man. Special, big tits, says the advertisement for a softcore magazine on our neighborhood newsstand. But forget her breasts. 
A lush, fresh-lipped blonde, skin glowing gold, sprawls there, resplendent. Sixty nearly, yet these hardly tangible, hardly better than harlots, can still stir me. Maybe coming of age in the American sensual darkness, never seeing an unsmudged nipple, an uncensored vagina, has left me forever infected with an unquenchable lust of the eye, always that erotic murmur. I'm hardly myself if I'm not in a state of incipient desire. God knows, though, there are worse twists your obsessions can take. Last year in Israel, a young ultra-Orthodox rabbi guiding some teenage girls through the shrine of the Shoah forbade them to look in one room because there were images in it he said were licentious. The display was a photo, men and women stripped naked, some trying to cover their genitals, others too frightened to bother lined up in snow, waiting to be shot and thrown in a ditch. The girls, to my horror, averted their gaze. What carnal mistrust had their teacher taught them? Even that, though, another confession. Once, in a book on pre-war Poland, a studio portrait, an absolute angel with tormented tormenting eyes, I kept finding myself at her page that she died in the camps made her. I didn't dare wonder why. More present, more precious. Died in the camps. That too, people, or Jews anyway, kept from their children back then. But it was like sex. You didn't have to be told. Sex and death how close they can seem, so constantly conscious now of death moving towards me, sometimes I think I confound them. My wife's loveliness almost consumes me. My passion for her goes beyond reasonable bounds. When we make love, her holding me everywhere all around me, I'm there and not there. My mind teems, jumbles of faces, voices, impressions. I live my life over as though I were drowning. Then I am drowning in despair at having to leave her. This, everything, all, unbearable, awful. Still, to be able to die with no special contrition, not having been slaughtered or enslaved, and not having to know history's next mad rage or regression, it might be a relief. No, again no. I don't mean that for a moment. What I mean is the world holds me so tightly the good and the bad, my own follies and weakness, that even this counterfeit Venus with her sham heat and her bosom probably plumped with gel so moves me, my breath catches. Vamp, siren, seductress, how much more she reveals in her glare of ink than she knows, how she incarnates our desperate human need for regard, our passion to live in beauty, to be beauty, to be cherished by glances, if by no more, of something like love or love.
This is a little one from a series of poems called Symbols. This is the symbol called Wig. The bus that won't arrive this freezing, bleak, pre-Sabbath afternoon must be Messiah. The bewigged woman pacing the sidewalk, furious, seething, can only be the mystic Shekinah, the presence of God, torn from Godhead, chagrined, abandoned, longing to rejoin, reunite. The husband in his beard and black hat pushing a stroller a step behind her as she stalks. The human spirit which must slog through such degrading tracks of slush and street filth bound forever to its other, no matter how incensed she may be, how obliviously self-absorbed. And the child asleep, serene, uncaring in the crank and roar of traffic, his cheeks afire, ladders of snowy light leaping and swirling above him, is what else but psyche, holy psyche, always only now just born, always now just waking to the ancient truths of knowledge, suffering, loss. I'll read a new poem. The last revision actually happened this morning. It's a poem about what's happening to us now. It's called War. I keep rereading an article I found recently about how Mayan po- how Mayan scribe, excuse me, I'll start again. I keep rereading an article I found recently about how Mayan scribes, who also are historians, polemicists, and probably poets as well, when their side lost a war, not a rare occurrence apparently, there having been a number of belligerent kingdoms constantly struggling for supremacy, would be disgraced and tortured, their fingers broken and the nails torn out and then be sacrificed. Poor things. The reproduction from a glyph shows three. One sprawls in slack despair, gingerly cradling his left hand with his right. Another gazes at his injuries with furious incomprehension, while the last lifts his mutilated fingers to the conquering warriors as though to elicit compassion for what's been done to him. They elaborately armored, glowering at one another. Don't bother to look. Like bomber pilots in our day, one might think, with their radar and their infallible infrared, who soar unheard, unseen, over generalized digital targets that mystically unite, billowing out from vaporized cores, or like the Greek and Trojan gods, when they tire of their creatures, flesh ripped by the ruthless bronze, and wander off. Or like the god we think of as ours, who found mouths to speak for him, then left. They fought until nothing remained but rock and dust and shattered bone. Troy's walls a waste, the stupendous Mesoamerican cities abandoned to devouring jungle, tumbling on themselves like children's blocks. 
and we alone again under an anonymous and oblivious sky were quick to learn how our best construals of divinity, our do unto love, don't kill, could be easily garbled to canticles of vengeance and battle prayers. Fall's first freshness, strange, the season's ceaseless wheel, starting, starting south, the leaves annealing, ready to release. Yet still, those columns of nothingness rise from their own ruins, their twisted carcasses of steel and ash still fume, and still, one by one, tacked up by hopeful lovers, husbands, wives, on walls, in hospitals, the absent faces wait already tattering, fading, going out. These things that happen in the particle of time we have to be alive, these violations which almost more than any altar, ark, or mosque embody sanctity by enacting so precisely sanctity's desecration, these broken voices of bereavement asking of us what isn't to be given, these suddenly smudged images of consonance and peace, these fearful burdens to be borne, complicity, contrition, grief. Thank you. I have one uh, brief announcement and one reminder before we give one final expression of our gratitude to our distinguished guests this afternoon. Uh, the announcement is that Wendy Wasserstein's talk address, or address, My Life in the Theater, its location has been changed to Makash 50. I notice there's a sign outside saying the same thing, but for those of you intending to attend, that'll be at Makash 50. Uh, also, the reminder is that, of course, you're all invited to a reception at Firestone Library immediately following the closure of this session here today for to look at the exhibition, Not For Myself Alone, Celebrating Jewish American Writers, which is curated by Meg Rich and James Weinstein. I hope many of you, if not all of you, will attend. Now, will you please all join me in giving in the final vote of thanks, an expression of thanks. Thank you all.